as you well know, we are believing God for an outpouring of the Spirit and subsequent revival. We do not want to... Um, we don't want to create such a mental image of this that we're, it's almost like we're imposing that image on God. This is how it's supposed to be. We can have a mental image. That's not wrong. You know, Moses um, and the Israelites, they had a mental image of the promised land. And, uh, well, Noah, he had a mental image of the ark. All before any of these things actually happened. But we don't want to be so focused on what we think it should be that we miss out when it happens. And remember, it's not simply about this church. It's about the kingdom of God and locally this region. It, it's a... Um, it requires us to press into God and keep pressing in. And we, we say this and we know this. However, I'm going to be the first to admit that I, some, I, I question myself. You know, am I pressing in as much as I could? Because it's so easy to make excuses. We all make them. In fact, we, we all make them on a continual basis because I really don't think any of us are pressing in to the level that we could. I'm not, I'm, nobody's come and told me that, but it's just um, the way it is. But we have to continue to do this because it's not a sovereign move of God. He's waiting on us to do our part so that he can do his part. You know, God already, God told uh, the Israelites what they had to do to cross over into the promised land. But the waters didn't part until they stepped into the water. It was only after their feet touched the water that it parted, and then they could all begin to go across. Well, it's the same thing for us. You know, we have to do our part. And uh, it's this, it's a failure to press into God, which has resulted in one generation after another basically needing to start over again. And that's what's happening now. I would say, really, pretty much everything that I have ever taught should be uh, something that was already being taught to all of us who were raised in church. In other words, it, it, I shouldn't have people come to me and say, oh my goodness, wow, I never heard that before. I've never seen that in the Word before. It's been in the Word for 2,000 years. Well, I mean as far as kingdom teaching. It's been in the Word for centuries. It's always been there. When we were born into this world, it was already in the world, in the Word. So, we've all been raised in a religious um, climate where it was just the surface. Even in what you might call uh, your spirit-filled churches, like the old-time Pentecostal churches and so forth, there was such an emphasis on physical demonstration that there really was not a lot of spiritual maturity. 
You know, the Apostle Paul talks about how that, you know, you can force your flesh to do something. But he calls it will worship. It, it should not come to the point of a forcing. It should be a byproduct of a life. Just how we live. It shouldn't be that difficult. I know that for me years ago, and I would hear things, Christians say things like, well, it's just too hard, it's just too hard. I mean, whatever that meant to them as far as whatever they needed to do in their walk with God. It's just too hard. Just, and, and I, you know, kind of went along with it. But now I realize the whole it's just too hard is either one, an excuse, or two, a total lack of knowledge concerning who a person is in Christ, who they become. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, there you go. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. There you go. We know a lot of these verses, but when it comes to their application and a full understanding of what they mean, I, it, it's kind of like we just want to you know, cruise on through life and we don't do it. Part of the reason we don't do it is because we didn't see the generation before us doing it. And they didn't do it because they didn't see the generation before them. And they didn't do it because they didn't see the generation before them. In other words, we could go back who, uh, centuries and we've never really seen true, genuine outpouring and revival, consistent. We have, we've seen spurts here and there. But we've never seen it consistently. And so, all of us in here, you know, we kind of had to start over again. And it shouldn't be like that. But that's the way it is. We have to continue believing that if we do these things, you know, the prayer, the fasting, the worship word, if we do these things, you know, change is going to take place. It, it absolutely will. If that's what we want. Because the Bible tells us, okay, if you do this, then here's going to be the result. You know, if you worship me, here's going to be the result. You pray in the Spirit, here's going to be the result, and so forth. So therefore, you know, if you want it, you can have it. You, we can do this. Jesus said, look, if you believe the works I do, you can do also. And quite frankly, even though we make reference to that, it's almost like there's something in us that doesn't believe that. Because we're not seeing it happen. And yet we should, we should see it happen. It shouldn't be a difficult thing. It all goes back really to what you believe in your faith. Um, turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Now as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read Matthew 24 verse 14. Now in Matthew 24, Jesus has begun explaining what's going to happen um, in time prophecy, really. And he goes through and, and gives a whole lot of information. And he talks about how that you know false prophets are going to arise, going to deceive many and so forth, and uh, that the love of many will wax cold and men's hearts failing them because of fear. Then he talks about those who endure to the end will be saved. 
And that enduring to the end means making it through all of the, the false prophets. I mean, just everything. Everything that happens that could impact a Christian to turn from God. He says, those who endure to the end, they're the ones who are going to be saved. And in Matthew 24, 14, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When I was growing up, the idea was, well, you had to get on a plane or a boat and go to all the nations. That was it. I mean, that was the only way this could be done. Now look in Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to read through this, and then we're going to read, well, you'll see it. You'll see it here in just a moment. It says in verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now obviously, we, this is a prophecy about Jesus. And what we're getting ready to read <laughs> is like, a synoptic passage that covers centuries. I'm talking from the birth of Jesus until now. I mean, until the end. So he says here, verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And the righteousness shall be the girdle, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, now look here, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, now, Jesus said, and this is here at the end, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Here we see that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, you, I'm sure you can see how that the, the nine verses we just read start you know, with the birth of Jesus, but cover, really, right up to the end. And he's talking about things that will happen. Where he says that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we are pretty much at the fulfillment of that word. And you might think, well, I don't understand. Well, let me explain this. Because it's something that nobody ever thought of back when I was a kid or before. Do you realize that right now, 
right this moment, you can be anywhere on planet Earth and access information about the knowledge of the Lord. Anywhere. It's called the Internet. Do you realize that right now, as we're in this room, though you can't see them, there are, it's not just radio waves, like Wi-Fi signals, which really those are radio waves, but this is all over the planet, everywhere. The planet is covered, completely covered with all of this. Because you have satellites. I don't know how many countries have how many satellites. They're circling the earth continually. And this information is being sent to satellites. And then it's being sent back down to earth. And no matter where you are on this planet. I don't know maybe uh, the Arctic or the Antarctic. You know up around the poles. I mean maybe not there. I don't know. But generally speaking. As long as you have some sort of device that can access those beams that are being sent out, you're going to be able to instantly pull in the knowledge of the Lord. Instantly. We've never had anything like this. Never. And here it is. It's happening right now. So when it comes to the whole aspect of the gospel preached throughout the whole world for a witness... It doesn't have to happen by an individual going into these countries. It can happen now. Because as long as you have the right equipment, then there it is. It's taking place. You can access it. You can watch it. All you have to have is the right equipment. That's it. So right now, you know, we could spend the money and send the right equipment to different places throughout the world. And all they have to do is hook it up. You say, well, yeah, but they don't have any electricity. Well, we make sure they have a generator. And they're going to be able to connect all that equipment, call in all their friends and family who live out there in the desert or in the jungle, and guess what? They're going to be able to access the knowledge of the Lord, the preaching of the gospel, in a way that nobody anticipated just 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And now here we are. It's happening. That means we are getting closer and closer to the end. We are seeing prophecy fulfilled in ways that maybe we don't even think about prophecy being fulfilled. And yet, here it is. It's taking place. When you begin to read in the book of Revelation, there are a lot of things that, I mean, you read it and you think, what in the world is John talking about? Well, just, just imagine 2,000 years ago being given a vision of something happening 2,000 years in the future, and you're trying to describe it. All the technology, all of this, this stuff that's happening. How, how would you do that? That would be so difficult. And what's going to happen is the closer we get to the return, some of these things that are recorded in Revelation, we're going to read this and think, oh, that's what he was looking at. That's what he saw. We are getting closer to the return of Jesus. And this is why the whole aspect of the, the uh, pressing into God for this outpouring. We have to do this. It, it's, you know, if not us, who? You know what I'm saying? 
And there tends to be, well, I don't know. It's kind of like there's a laziness among a lot of Christians. Well, we can't afford that. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Back in October of 1962 and running through May of 1963, there was a TV show called Stony Burke. Anybody remember that? It starred Jack Lord, and he was a like a, he was a, a rodeo person. He went to all these different rodeos. And one of his specialties was riding the bucking horses. And when the show would first come on, you know, each episode, it would show uh, like cowboys on these bucking horses. And I'm sure some of you have seen images of this on TV shows or in uh, movies or something like that. And, and the reason for the, why, you know, the reason the horses are acting that way is because they don't want you riding them. They don't want you telling them what to do. And so they start bucking. And, and some of them buck very violently to get you off their back. Leave me alone. Go away. You are bothering me. And if you give me a chance, I will stomp on you. Well, <laughs> as I was praying, this is interesting. The Lord said, just like a horse needs to be broken before it can be ridden and led, the flesh needs to be broken and brought under the authority of the new nature. You and I both know, every one of us in here, the flesh is a bucking bronco. It does not want to be ridden. It does not want to be controlled. What's that? You want to stop, name your habit. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. No, you are not going to stop that. Go ahead and try. Try, really. Go ahead. And so you try, and what does the flesh do? Bucks. You're not going to do this? Oh, no. I want to keep doing this. And the flesh has to be brought under control. It is going to buck. It is going to rebel. It wants you off its back. It doesn't want you, the new nature, taking control because it really likes what it likes. But look at this. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If ye through the Spirit do bring that bucking bronco of the flesh under control, you will experience the fullness of the life that Christ has promised. Now, there's no other way around this. Absolutely none. And God won't do it for you. He tells you right here, you, if you through the Spirit, you, through the power of, of your life in you, your born-again life, if you through the power of that born-again life will do this, but it's up to you. The biggest problem that we have is not doing this. You know, it's like, the, it's like the one guy said, oh, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. <laughs> That's goofy. <laughs> the, 
There are so many things in our lives that we know need to be brought under control, whatever it is. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life, but an easy one to pick would be, you know, well, how much television do you watch? Okay, there are things that we know need to be brought under control, and yet, why isn't it happening? Why aren't we doing these things? It's because the flesh is bucking. The flesh doesn't want to yield. And this is where, just like when those, um, I mean, even today, they still have to break horses before they can be ridden. And some horses are more easily broken than others. Just, you know, the, the character and personality of the horse. But it still has to be done if you're going to ride that horse. Well, when it comes to the things of the flesh, you know, we can't, we can't make excuses. We can't say that we can't. One of the things that I've had, you know, kind of thrown at me is, well, I'm not as spiritual as you. It's like, you know what? I can get in the flesh real quickly if you want and just slap that stuff right out of you or at least try to and enjoy trying. That whole thing of you're, you're, I'm just not as spiritual as you, what a bunch of honk. You know, are you born again? Yes, then you are every bit as spiritual as Jesus. Do you hear? I didn't say you're divine or divinity or God or deity, all right? But spiritual, you are. Well, I'm just not as spiritual as you. Yeah, yeah, you are. You just you you you're trying to convince yourself that you can't, and you're trying to get me to come into agreement with you, and, and that's not going to happen. Well, I'm just not as strong as you. Now, hold on. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You know what God is saying? You're strong enough. You're just not trying hard enough. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Too many times, we get into that will worship thing of trying to change things in our lives instead of just pressing into God and letting the change begin to take place. This is, it's frustrating for me to hear the excuses because I was an excuse maker at one time. But the more I began, you know, mortifying the flesh through the Spirit, is the more I began to realize, you know what, this really does work. And, yeah, you know, you, you have to put forth some effort, but it works. And for people to come and tell me, well, it doesn't, I know better. It does work. Been there, done that. No, you, you know, you're not going to get me in agreement with that. And so what happens is, you know, we let that bucking bronco of the flesh just keep tossing us off and uh, sometimes we find it easier to sit on the fence and get back on the horse and so you know things aren't happening and then we settle into this um, this I don't know this holding pattern you know we're just kind of cruising through life and it doesn't work oh I mean you can do that you still go to heaven don't get me wrong but when we say, I want to be everything God wants me to be, well, okay, God says, here's how you do it. It's in the Word. 
then if we don't do it, and you know something I have really begun to pick up on is God pays a lot of attention to what we say. For example, oh God, I'll do anything you want. God says, okay, you said it. Now I'm going to have somebody come into your life and teach you from my word what I've said I want my children to do. All right, now, now we're accountable. <laughs> so what are we going to do with this? Well, we're going to have to keep riding that horse until it's broken. It's not an option. If we want to see this revival, if we want to see it happen, you know, there are people out there depending on us, and they don't even know they are. And we don't even know. They are depending on us. But they're depending on us. Because we can have an influence on them beyond what we think. You know, you may not think that you can impact the people that you work with. You can. You absolutely can. But we have to keep riding the flesh. Now, when I was growing up, <laughs> um, you know, raised in church, every now and then, mom would fix a pot roast. And uh, before we left for church, you know, she'd have the, the pot roast in the pan and have the vegetables all cut up and so forth. And, you know, she'd put it in the oven, whatever the temperature was. And then, you know, we'd leave and go to church, we have Sunday school, and we have the church service, and church be over. We go home, and man, I'm telling you, you walk through that door. Oh, wow. The smell. Oh, my goodness. It just, oh, smelled so good. And just couldn't wait to sit down at the table and, and just begin to, you know, glutton myself. <laughs> It was so good. And I know that my mom wasn't the only one like that. There are other, you know, ladies in the church did the same thing. Well, I was praying here not too long ago. And I'm going to read something to you the Holy Spirit said. And I kind of got a chuckle out of this one. He said, revivalists don't cook a pot roast. Revivalists don't cook a pot roast. Here's why. In other words, you don't expect that a service is going to end by noon or 12.30 so you can get home in time before the pot roast burns. In other words, now think about that. When you put that pot roast in the oven, you are expecting the service will be over by such and such, so we will get home and have our lunch. Revivalists don't cook a pot roast. Look over in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now the passage we're going to read has nothing to do with the pot roast. <laughs> but you'll understand. And you know, I had never really thought of it like that before, but that's true, because 
when, we're, when we have an expectation for God to move, then we're not going to plan lunch at 1 o'clock or 12.30. And then if the church service goes a little bit longer and the lunch gets burned, we're not going to get mad at the preacher. Because every one of you in here know what I'm talking about, even if you never had a pot roast on a Sunday afternoon. You still understand the concept. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41, And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain, because they've been having a bad drought for years. So Ahab, Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. So just capture that image. He's sitting on the ground, and he's kind of, you know, pulling his legs up close to his chin, and his face is down there between. It's like he's kind of all scrunched up. You know what I'm saying? All right. And said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. So here's his servant. He goes up and he looks. And he comes back. He says, Nothing. He'll go again. goes up and he looks. And comes back. Nothing. And the whole time, <laughs> Elijah is sitting there all scrunched up He's got his face between his knees. Well, verse 44. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up and say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, now here's what I'm getting at. Elijah, <laughs> he's sitting there, all scrunched up, with his face between his knees. Now, I don't know, maybe Elijah was a really limber guy. But for me, I don't want to sit five minutes in a position like that, let alone however long he was like this until, you know, the rain came. And Elijah sat there in what I would call a position of great inconvenience to the flesh, waiting until he knew that the rain had been released. And only then did he get up and begin to move. A revivalist doesn't cook a pot roast. In other words, when the service starts, if God begins to move, a growling stomach is not louder than the move of God. We sit in that crunched, scrunched up position. You know, and the symbolism here, right? We inconvenience our flesh so that we're receiving 
this move of God, the rain, the outpouring. We cannot allow ourselves to, even if we never say anything about it, we cannot allow ourselves to schedule an unofficial end to a church service. Well, you know, we've got to get out of here because you know, we've got people coming over. Well, you should have never invited them. I mean, do you want an outpouring or not? Do you want revival or not? You don't, then, then you don't do things like that. Well, you know, we're, we're supposed to go over to, you know, Uncle Guido's house. Uh, I hope his service is over soon. You should have told Uncle Guido, we'll be there when we get there. Well, yeah, but you don't understand. They're having... No, I do understand. You have to sit in a scrunched up position inconveniencing yourself if you want to see this outpouring. Guys, that's just the way it is. You know, they went to the upper room and they were there for roughly 10 days. Well, I don't know what in the world they had to change as far as their lives were concerned in order to be there for that outpouring. A lot of people never showed up for whatever the reasons. They could have, but they didn't. So these folks had to completely rearrange their lives and wait and wait. And they didn't know how long they were going to have to wait. Jesus never said on this particular day. He just said, tarry in Jerusalem until... So now if we want this outpouring, we have to come to the place, if it means, I don't know what it would mean to anybody, but I mean, if, it, if it means that we eat a McDonald's hamburger for lunch after church because it, it's always going to be there waiting for us, if that's what it means, then, then that's what it means. And I think that a lot of Christians have never truly considered this concept of an outpouring of God. Is it possible that God is saying, you know, I'm, I'm this close to being able to move through you guys, but, you know, when it gets to be around 1230, a whole bunch of you, you start doing this. Checking your watch. Pulling out your phone. You know, what time is it? How much longer? When's it going to be over? We've got to be someplace. You know, I don't want to be last in line. You know, and God is saying, you know, if until my outpouring and revival mean more to you than that, then I really am not going to be able to move. Because you've put up a wall to me. So that's something that's going to have to be torn down. So revivalists, don't cook a pot roast. Or, you know, cook it the night before, and, and then when you go home, Toss it in the, the microwave or whatever. It'll still be good. But we have to rethink these things that, that can sometimes seem so minor and not a big deal, but yet, you know, to God it can be because these can be hindrances to him being able to, you know, release that outpouring and revival. I, some of you may like baseball. Some of you may not. Well, there's a team in Los Angeles called the Angels. Yeah, Charlie thought I was going to say the Dodgers. <laughs> no, the Angels. Now, every team in Major League Baseball wants to win the World Series. I mean, that's it. That's the culmination of it all. 
So, it was sometime around 2010, 2011, that the owners of the angels, you know, the, the management group decided, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to put together the best possible team we can. And we are going to win a, a bunch of titles. So they started doing that. And in, um, in 2012, they signed Albert Pujols. Now, Albert Pujols is going to go down in history as one of the greatest players in history ever. Um, I think all, our, already he is maybe um, fifth on the list of players who have hit the most career home runs. You know, the guy just incredible. Well, anyway, uh, the Angels signed him to a 10-year contract paying him $24 million a year. And then in 2013, the starting lineup for the California Angels included Albert Pujols, Mike Trout, Josh Hamilton, Kendris Morales, and Mark Trumbo, just to name a few. Now, baseball people are thinking, who? But what it came down to was uh, the roster and the lineup that the Angels had at that time. And I remember this clearly. Sports writers were saying, nobody's going to beat these guys. You know, just the number of home runs, the five of them have been hitting every year. I mean, this is incredible. It's the best lineup we've seen. This is going to be the next murderer's row since the 1927 New York Yankees. It's not a matter of uh, are they going to win a World Series. It's a matter of how many are they going to win because this is a super team. And I remember hearing about that, but I remember as I'm reading these articles thinking, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, guess what? From that time until right now, this year, the California Angels, well, Los Angeles Angels only made the playoffs one time and got beaten and never made it to a single World Series. In spite of having talent that almost no other team could match, they never made it to the World Series. And a lot of people, you know, will wonder why that is. Why, why didn't they do that? Well, here's my theory. Here's how I explain it. They did not have good team cohesiveness. And what that means is this. You can have all the talent in the world. And even if the players aren't bickering and fighting and arguing all the time, if you do not have the square peg to fit in the square hole, it's not going to work. It's a hard thing to explain, but... If the players aren't, if they aren't in sync as a team, then it's not going to happen. And this was the perfect example of that. Uh, go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. But then right along with that, there have been teams which they shocked everybody. You know, who are you? And I, can, I remember... The 1969 New York Mets. When they won the World Series that year, it was a team full of nobodies. But yet those nobodies turned into superstars. But at that time, they hadn't done anything. In fact, up until then, 
the New York Mets were considered a laughing stock of Major League Baseball. Then all of a sudden, here they are. <laughs> they win the World Series. I think they. I think in '69 they beat uh, the Baltimore Orioles. I think. I think that's who they beat in the World Series. And Baltimore's team was really good. But man, New York, the Mets, they did it. That's because they had a team cohesiveness that carried out on the field into victory after victory. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to this, beginning in verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, and that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. In other words, when it comes to us seeing this outpouring and this revival, it is absolutely critical that we have team cohesiveness. We cannot have the infighting and the bickering. We can't have, well, you know, I don't know why they did that. And I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that they, no, 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 uh, no, you, you can't have that. You can't. And that's happened from time to time. We've had people in here get upset about something and, and uh, it's just a bunch of, you know, Baby face, you got the cutest little baby face. You know, grow up. Come on. You're not going to have this outpouring and revival as long as you get mad because somebody used your microphone or somebody sit where you sit or or somebody used the pew Bible that you normally use because you don't feel like bringing your Bible from home to church. <laughs> well, that says a lot, doesn't it? We have to be willing to put up with people's idiosyncrasies. You say, well, Brother Martin, I don't know what that word is. What, what's that word mean? It, we have to be willing to put up with people's weirdness. That's, that's, <laughs> idiosyncrasies is like, you know, the, the nice word. People's strangeness. People's oddities. Like, seriously? You like spinach with vinegar? That is so weird. <laughs> okay, that's my opinion of spinach with vinegar. But a lot of people eat it. A lot of people like it. I know mom and dad did. Good glory. The point I'm making is, when it comes to a team in professional sports, you can pay every player $100 million a year. But if you don't have that cohesiveness, you're not going to win. It's not going to happen. Even if the players fight and bicker away from the game, away from you know, the stadium, if you've got that cohesiveness, the moment you step on the field, you will win. I remember years ago, I played a whole lot of softball. And uh, uh, I played for the church that I was attending at the time. We were good. We had a really good team. And there was a tournament that used to be held down in Middletown. Grace Baptist Church would put it on. And it was a big tournament. Uh, churches from all over would show up. Some churches came from out of state. And uh, we never won. We came in second, I think, one year. But there was this one team, they won it two years in a row, which was unheard of in this tournament. And I remember, you know, we played against that team. I don't know if we played them both years they won it, but I think one year we did. But I remember watching them thinking, 
you guys are a bunch of scrawny little, I mean, what's the deal with this? They didn't have any, you know, big bruisers that were going to hit the ball 500 feet. I mean, it wasn't like that. They weren't a power team. But they won that tournament two years in a row. And the reason for that was because they had team cohesiveness and they all just played their game. And they won. It was really amazing. But at the same time, I, I admired it. We have to have that kind of cohesiveness. We cannot allow the petty whatevers of other people. Now, granted, if there's sin going on, you know, that kind of stuff needs to be addressed. If somebody just rebellious, it needs to be addressed. But we have to understand everybody's different. I mean, can you imagine what Jesus had to put up with the 12 apostles? Good heavens. You, you go from a tax collector, you know, to a, a, a burly fisherman, you know, who liked to shave with a dull axe. <laughs> he had to deal with this stuff. And remember, they did, they kind of fussed among themselves, you know, Remember, you know, we want to be the best. We want to sit next to you. We want to be, and, you know, Jesus had to settle down all this stuff. But he still used them. Okay, he trained them, get over yourselves. And focus on the purpose at hand. And that's what we have to do. Um, look in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus, I said Exodus chapter 1, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 1, that's a good chapter, but <laughs> we're going to Exodus chapter 17. And in verse 1, When all the children of the, uh, a congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They'd be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee, three, uh, take with thee uh, of the elders of Israel and thy rod there wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall water come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God said, Go to the rock, smack the rock with your and water. Is going to come out, and uh, everybody's going to be able to drink. So he did, and they drank. Now, jump over to Exodus 20. And that's the wrong one. <laughs> okay, let's go to Numbers 20. Sometimes you think you get your notes perfect, and then you realize, nope, messed up. Numbers 20. That's the correct chapter. Now, in Numbers 20, start reading... In verse 1, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chided with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die here? 
And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels! Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses is mad. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now, the end does not always justify the means. God told Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses did not speak to the rock. Now, we can go into all kinds of types and shadows of, you know, striking the rock the first time was living under the law, the works of the law. Speaking to the rock the second time was living in the kingdom of God and so forth. That's a whole different type of sermon. But the end doesn't always justify the means. Now, when that water was coming out of the rock the second time, I have no doubt that there would have been some people. Now remember, we're talking thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. I have no doubt that some of those people would look at that and say, Whoa, glory to God. A move of God. Look at this. Boy, Moses, he knows what to do. He knows how to hear God. Look at this. We got water again. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, they wouldn't have said, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jehovah. Only guess what? Moses knew this wasn't the way to do it. Even though it looks like this is the way God said to do it, it wasn't the way to do it. And what you have going on today in the body of Christ are a lot of pastors. They built these big churches by striking the rock. In other words, they're not really trusting God the way they say. They're doing whatever they can to pull the people in. You understand the imagery? They're striking the rock. Now, Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. We cannot strike the rock by accepting that which is counterfeit before God, even though it may look like a move of God. And that's part of what's going to happen and is happening here in these end times. When Jesus said that these false prophets were going to arise, people are going to look at some of these things that happen. They're going to believe that this is truly the way God wants it done, truly a move of God, when in, in reality what's happening is somebody is just striking the rock. We can't do that. 
Just because we did something five years ago and it worked, doesn't mean that this is the way we're supposed to do it now. We have to do whatever God says. You know, there were uh, people that used to come to our conference because they had seen you know, Pastor Dave Roberson move in a certain way during some of the conferences. And I, I was actually approached um, after one of the conferences. Somebody said, well, I, I, thought, you know, I thought he was going to call me out. I thought he was going to call me out and pray for me. You know, why? I mean, it, they were kind of upset about this. You know, well, why didn't he do that? Well, I don't know. I guess maybe because God didn't move on him to do it. What they had seen in the past, they expected it to be a certain way once again, and then when it didn't happen that way, they're kind of not, not happy about it. In reality, they would have been perfectly happy for Pastor Dave Roberson to strike the rock and just do it. Just do it, as he'd done before. I remember one time, somebody was upset because they expected Pastor Dave was going to pray for them for, um, well, sickness. And this person had this piece of paper with all the physical stuff they were fighting written down. And she was going to present it to him and have him pray. Well, the service didn't go that way. And this person was very happy about it. You know, well, why didn't he do that? You know, I, I, I wanted him to pray for all this. I didn't want... And the thing is, didn't want anybody else to pray except for Pastor Dave Roberson. Well, you know what? Then it, it's almost like your faith is more in Pastor Dave Roberson than in what God can do. Because, you know, when Jesus sent out the 12 two by two, the 72 by two, he wasn't anywhere with them. But he said, you go and you do this. They went out, they did, came back, gave him the report. We cannot strike the rock. We have to continue pressing into God and doing whatever it is he says to do, following his instructions. Because if we don't, then we may see good things happen. But just because we're seeing results, it doesn't mean they're results the way that God wanted them to take place. So we have to be patient. We have to wait on God. And if he says, you know, figuratively speaking, if he says, don't strike the rock this time, speak to it, and that's what we do. We speak to it. <laughs> we don't get mad and beat on the rock till something comes out. We speak to it. So, what all this comes down to is, we have to keep pressing into God. We have to keep seeking Him, no matter how difficult it can seem at times. No matter how, well, tonight, folks, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, 30 minutes of prayer and then 30 minutes of just sitting in God's presence. Seriously, you know how boring that is? No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, used to I did, but no, I don't. Um, but you see what I'm saying? We have to be obedient and do it God's way. Praise the Lord.